Welcome everyone to episode 69 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Burnick. I got two special guests for you guys today. We got Ray and Janelle Norton. So uh, both have dealt with a lot of trauma throughout their careers and uh, they both have learned to work with it whether it's through martial arts or yoga. Um, this is their story here. Uh, they're, they're working with O2X now and uh, helping out first responders and veterans all over the place. So without further ado, I'll stop talking and let's bring them in. Here's Ray and Janelle Norton. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. I've got two special guests with me today. I've got Ray and Janelle Norton. Good morning to you. Morning, how good are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm good. Is there snow on the ground where you're at? Absolutely not. Uh, no, but I wish is, there was. It is cold for us. It's, what's what's cold for you? Like 60 degrees, 50 degrees? 44 this morning. 44. See, that would be, I'd be wearing shorts right now if that was the case where I'm at. It was down to 36 this morning, which is, <laughs> only get a few days of those. Either. All the geckos are frozen solid. Yeah. <laughs> nice. The, good unfortunate for the geckos this morning but uh lots of stuff to dive into you guys have both had some pretty crazy careers um so i kind of just want to jump right into that so i know ray you've been a firefighter now for how many years uh april would be my 34 34 years all right but it's not just that is it you, you, you do other stuff beyond that as well yeah, I was uh, start off as a volunteer firefighter in '87. Um, came paid in '88. Um, became a paramedic, and then uh, started working in a level two trauma center in the emergency room for adult and pediatrics. Progressed my way up to get on a position our local aeromedical trauma helicopter, Faith Light, and I did that for 24 and a half years and uh, worked for two agencies in the fire service, worked my way up through every position and currently hold the position of uh, district chief for our ship, which would be like the battalion chief in some departments. Sure, sure. We call them district chief too. So our departments have it right. All the other ones have it wrong. <laughs> All right. So, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, you kind of end up choosing a career like, Hey, I want to go to flight nurse path. And you end up just doing that. You said, Oh, no, 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 no. I want to do both at the same time, you know, do, you know, rotating shifts with being a fire and, you know, on a helicopter. For me, like when I started, you know, it was a, other than like fitness and working out it was the first thing I was really passionate about. So the more I learned, the more I wanted to know and, you know, early in my career, I, I worked some interesting trauma calls and uh, found that pretty fascinating helicopter coming in. It what the, the Faith Light program that was there was kind of the elite program in the area. I was actually one of the busiest trauma helicopters in the nation, had a very good reputation, very hard to get on. Um, it was something that spurred me and people were like, oh, you'll never get on there, which of course drives me. <laughs> And uh, I wanted to know more, the more I knew. So that, that's why I took a job at the trauma center was actually to, to learn to be a better paramedic and learn more. And then the more I learned, the more responsibilities I took on and became a preceptor. And 
um, kind of, you know, lived it. But I worked a gazillion hours. I was working. I was either at the fire department. I was in the emergency room. I was on the helicopter, or I was out, you know, working out or hitting the, you know, the bars with friends and stuff like that. But I, I worked some crazy hours. Like a a, a modest week was at eighty. Um, and the average week was over a hundred. I always tell that one week I worked 144 hours a week. <laughs> you guys warn me that if anybody comes to the door, <laughs> that dog would go at it. So no, that's okay. Um, Janelle, let's, let's jump to you. What was, what was your first career? Cause that's pretty interesting as well. Actually more interesting. No offense, Ray. There's uh, tons of people that can be firefighters. Definitely. <laughs> Um, well, I, but this is to me, this is unique. So <laughs> I always wanted to be a photographer ever since I can remember. My dad bought me a camera when I was 14 and I, I grew up in Wisconsin. So there wasn't a whole lot to do. I was running around photographing cows and junkyards and things like that. And I got on my yearbook, you know, um, and then I ended up getting um, some money from a Pell Grant and I went and got my associate degree uh, for photography. And I thought, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go be a photographer. And I went and applied at the Milwaukee Journal and they, they were just like, we, you can't work here with an associate degree. You need a bachelor's degree. I was like, oh my God, I was so disappointed. I had no way to get a bachelor's degree. I had no money. You know, we came from a modest middle-class family. And um, so I started looking at what avenues could I, could I do to get uh, my degree. And uh, I can't even remember who mentioned it. I think it was one of my counselors in school to look into the military, which I was not a really good kid growing up. I'll say that right off the bat. I was horrible in school. I barely graduated. Um, I did okay at the photography school because it was something I liked, but I was never really a great student. And I was always running around with kind of not a great crowd. <laughs> Thank God my mom worked at the police department so that uh, they kept me in line uh, when, you know, I would go off the rails. But I never in a million years, nor did anyone else that knew me, thought about me going into the service. So when I joined, uh, yeah, it was kind of a shocker. But they had one of the best photojournalism programs. Um, I looked into the Navy and the Air Force and ended up going to Air Force. And uh, they had a special identifier as a PJ photojournalist, not a parajumper. <laughs> Those guys hated us for using that acronym. Um, and I, uh, I just decided that's what I want to do. So when I joined, I went direct duty into um, Panama. That was in 89. I took a bypass test. Uh, and then, uh, you know, things just went from there. That was a whole operation that uh, kind of gave me the indoctrination of what, uh, what war is like photographing war. Um, after that, I applied to be a PJ to get that special identifier and I ended up getting accepted. And they sent me to RIT in Rochester and then they teach you how to be a photojournalist. And then when I came out, that's when I, uh, I was able to just attach to other services. Um, we were TDY, temporary duty all over the place. I, I, I never was really uh, in one place for very long. I moved, I think, 13 times when I was in. So it was a great career, though, in the, in the Air Force. I loved it. And how, how long were you were you able to do that for? I did uh, sign up for four years. And then um, when I got into my third year, they 
gave me the opportunity to go to Europe. They said, you can do the European vacation, but you need to have two years retention. So I wasn't sure that I wanted to re-up for four years. So I just re-upped for another two. Uh, I did a total of five years. Um, that math doesn't work out, does it? I re-upped for, yes, on my third year, I re-upped for two more. So I did five and I uh, went over to Europe. And then when I was over there, I, I was thinking, I think I'm going to re-up and do the whole retirement thing. Um, and I ended up flying in and out of Sarajevo when the Bosnia war kicked off and made friends with the UN mission people. And they offered me a job I couldn't turn down. So I ended up getting out of the military and working for the United Nations for two years over there during the Bosnia conflict, documenting humanitarian relief efforts. Okay. How old, how old were you when you're doing all this? 92. No. <laughs> you're 92? Okay. Yeah. It's amazing was, for your age. Thank you. I was, let's see, 21 when I joined the Air Force. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you got thrown into some pretty hairy situations, probably right from the start almost, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, basic training. Uh, when I went uh, from basic training from Wisconsin, never really lived anywhere outside, I know, outside of um Wisconsin. I traveled to New Orleans to see my dad here and there, and that was it. So I went uh, direct duty to Panama, and it's just like a foreign country, right? And it's hot, and people speak a different language. And it was my first Christmas away from home, and people are getting blown up, and it was it was pretty nuts. It was uh, going right into a frying pan. <laughs> nice, yeah. You can you can't really prepare for that yet. Probably no idea what you're getting yourself really into, did you? Mm -mm, no, I remember distinctly when they gave me the assignment I, when I was in basic and you get that day where you go talk to the person, you can put in for like stateside or CONUS, right? And I thought I wanted to stay stateside. I was dating a guy at the time and I thought he was a big hunter and a fisherman. If I put in for like my knot and these things, he'll probably follow me. So I put in for all these horrible northern bases that nobody puts in for and uh and then something in the back of my head was like ah just put in Spain Japan Alaska you know just see what happens well when you do that you pretty much tell the government that I'm yours you can send me anywhere that you need me and that's what happened they were just like oh you're you're going to Panama and I thought wow Panama Florida this will be cool and they're like no Panama South America or Central America and at that time there was a uh, magazine, Time Magazine was sitting there on the table uh, of this guy I was talking to and there was this dude um, with his hands up and people were beating him with sticks. He was all full of blood and he goes, that's where you're going. There was a lot of um, uprising happening at the time. And then I got a little scared and I called my grandma. I started to cry. I'll never forget that. I was like, grandma, I'm going to a war zone. And, uh, and then that went away and then I got a little excited and I was like, well, this is what you wanted. So this is what you got. <laughs> and that's how that happened. A little bit different than Alaska. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So you, you go and you do the UN thing. Um, at what point do you decide, all right, this is enough and I'm, I'm going back home. I'm going to do something different. Yeah. So the normal tour length for, I was, um, an independent contractor with uh, working as a press information officer in the United Nations. And uh, we would go into all the 
areas uh, that were under siege and deliver humanitarian aid supplies. And it, it can be rough. You, there's a lot of very hard stories that what, what my job was to do was document what was happening as far as what we were delivering, who was receiving it, and the refugees. Uh, we would document stories. We'd go with the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders and things like that. So you get to hear some of um, some pretty bad situations as people were in. And uh, it's horrible at first, very hard to digest. And so the, the tour length is usually six months. Uh, that's usually a, you know, a good base. Some people leave, they go home and maybe they'll come back and rejoin. Um, I just kept re-upping. I re-upped four times and I stayed over there for two years. Um, and then there was a point that uh, we were interviewing these women who came across the border with their family. And uh, there's a lot of mass rape um, going on over there. And it was one of the stories that I had heard many, many times. And that morning, I just happened to be a little too hungover. We partied a lot over there. And I remember just like thinking in my head, you know, this poor woman is letting her heart out to this um, interpreter and I'm taking pictures and I'm just thinking I can't wait to get home to just eat something and take a nap. I, I really want this lady to kind of get done with her story. And, uh, and then that's when something clicked in my head and, and said, this isn't normal behavior. This is not normal thought patterns. Uh, you need to probably get yourself back home and removed from all of this for a while because you're not thinking correctly. Uh, that was at the two-year mark, and that's when I pulled the ripcord and came home and uh, decided to go back to school. Yeah, yeah, that, that whole kind of feeling stone cold, not letting uh, things that, that you should take in as a human being, and all of a sudden, like, it's no big deal. I mean, we do that, Bray, I'm sure you've done it at the firehouse all the time, where you see something screwed up, and then you come back to the station, you're like, all right, it's time to eat, or it's the game's on or whatever else, and you just you move past it that quickly. Just normalize it. Yeah. yeah. A lot of dark humor involved to help normalize that. I think that's very prominent in the fire service, the newsroom, those kinds of jobs. You have to normalize it and make it okay for your brain to digest some of that stuff. All right. Well, so you go back home. When did you end up meeting Ray and this whole love story kind of began? Oh, well, it took a little while. I mean, I was um, 30 or 28 when I came back. I'm really bad with chronological order. Uh, and I finished my schooling. That took two years. I went to Western Kentucky, got my degree and um, applied at a few newspapers, <clears throat> ended up at the St. Petersburg Times. And uh, it was really great work, a very, one of the top 10 newspapers in the nation at the time and uh, right back in the frying pan, right? Running around after, you know, we worked a lot with first responders and um, there's always a fire or somebody getting beat up or, you know, court stuff. We covered sports, everything. It was fast paced and fun. And, and uh, when I moved here, I was, you know, still single at 30. And my mom's getting worried, you know, <laughs> and I was pretty much thinking at this point, I'm, I'm just gonna not, you know, get married, probably I just, you know, haven't found that person yet. And uh, it's funny how when you just give up, sometimes things just fall on you. So I ended up getting an assignment not long after I got here, I got here in August of uh, 98. And in February of 99, I got an assignment 
to go photograph Bay Flight. The reporter had already went out with them. They can only have one person in the back of the helicopter. It's really small. And uh, so then they said, okay, the reporter went out. We need a photographer to go and get pictures of a scene to go with the story. So I got picked for that. And uh, I went and they had a crew of three, a pilot, a nurse, and a paramedic. And Ray happened to be the paramedic that day of all days because he didn't work there every day. It just happened to be that day that I got the assignment. And um, it was the busiest helicopter um, in the nation at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. A busiest trauma scene, scene-based response helicopter. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to get in there because I hear them flying constantly. They're always flying. So I'm like, yeah, I'd probably get in, get a flight, and I'll have my thing this afternoon for my, my assignments. I had to cancel all my other assignments because we waited seven hours for a call. So we just sat in this little place, and they had a golf cart we rode around on. He showed me where they filled your oxygen tanks and... You know, it just started to get to know each other. And, How romantic. Yeah, it was fun. And I thought, oh, this guy's kind of cool. And he looks good in a flight suit. And uh, you know, I, was, I was a sucker for that. So um, he thought I didn't like him because at the end of the assignment, we finally got a call. Some lady went through her windshield and, you know, half of her head was all peeled back. And I'm photographing this and he was just this cool cucumber in there, you know, and uh, there, I was like, oh my God, this lady's going to bleed out. I, you know, thought there was a lot of blood coming out of her hand. He's just waving his hand like, nah, she'll be fine. you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I like him. He's, he's very cool under pressure. So when we got done, he wanted to walk me to my car and carry my gear for me, which I never let anyone carry my gear. And he thought I didn't like him. So... <laughs> <laughs> thought I was doing good and right. I was like oh, oh well oh well there's that but then I called him and uh, asked if uh, he wanted some of the photographs um, that I would I was not supposed to do that but I wanted an excuse to give him a buzz so I made him some pictures and we went to lunch and uh, he moved in two weeks later and it's been 20 years. years 21 it'll be 21 together 20 married yeah nice very, very cool how that all worked out. Mm -hmm. All right. So let me then kind of segue into the, because you need to, you know, stay this uh, photographer forever. You ended up saying, eh, I want to do something different. It kind of happened that way. Um, it's really one of the, sadly, few really great professions that, um, that you, have to be a jack of all trades now. You can't just be a photojournalist. You have to also be a videographer, an editor, you know, all that stuff. When I was in it, I started in the film days and then I was just a photojournalist. I went with a writer on all my assignments and, um, and then I became a photo editor for a while. Um, and then they started doing video and all that stuff at the end when I was working downtown on the desk as an editor. And I wasn't really all that interested in it. I, I liked uh, the editing part. You know, I didn't like running around anymore. I was getting older, <laughs> running around in 90 degree heat during brush fires and crap like that. I was like, ah, I'm done with that. Plus I had a little kid now. And um, so the newspapers started to circle the drain probably around, I don't know, mid 2000s. Uh, we started losing people. There was other newspapers that were uh, laying people off um, when the whole digital age started coming around and, and the news was starting 
to not be what it used to be. You know, we were collecting a lot of um, first person accounts that were sitting in photographs and I saw the writing on the wall. I'm like, this, this profession's not gonna be what it is uh, right now. And uh, just around that time, the military, somebody got my number and called me to come work for the GCC, the uh, Global Combat Command uh, news, um, sorry, magazines. Uh, they had them um, here in Tampa. So I went and worked for them uh, as an editor for two years and money was awesome. Job kind of sucked because it was stuck in a cubicle. And I, I, I just, you know, it was kind of like the end of the career. You know how it gets. Firefighters, I know you, you know the same thing. You know, you're like, oh, another call. It used to be like, yay, a call, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like that point in my life. And um, the, the, the magazines got outbid. It was a contract job. And 40 of us ended up not having a job after two years. And then here I was, uh, can't go back to the newspaper because they're just laying people off now, left and right. Um, who's going to hire a 47 year old photojournalist, you know, because everybody now can take pictures and send them. It's not really a profession anymore like that. Um, and, uh, and then I, I started feeling like without purpose and meaning it really was a dark time for me. And I thought, well, okay, uh, I got to go reinvent. I'm going to go back to school. So I went for my master's degree, like everybody else was doing in my industry for public affairs. I went for strategic communications management, big fancy hybrid word for like marketing. And uh, about, oh, maybe halfway through that, I discovered like, I, I can't look myself in the mirror and do this job. This is really <laughs> spin on a big degree. And then I started thinking about, well, maybe if I look at it like from the nonprofit view, then I could probably do this. I can peddle some messaging for nonprofits and do good in the world. And uh, that's kind of um, when also I found yoga because uh, I was spiraling a bit. Um, same kind of feelings that were coming up after I came back from spending five years, you know, running around in uh, all these austere places. And, uh, and that felt familiar. And I was like, ah, oh, I, gotta, I gotta nip this in the bud. And somebody, one of my friends mentioned, uh, you should try yoga. It, it'll really help. It's really good for your body, but it, I think it's more for the neck up. And I was like, all right. You know, I was used to working out at the gym all the time. I thought, well, I'll try it. And I went to one of these hot power yoga classes that crushed my soul and I slept like a baby. And then uh, I was like, ah, this is good. I, I gotta keep doing this. I kept, kept going back, kept going back ended up going for my yoga teacher training while I was finishing my master's. And, and then I started looking for work and there was just nothing available in 2011, I think it was. Yeah, it was still the recession. And, and it just so happened that this little yoga studio I was practicing at, one of the owners wanted to sell her half to me and uh, talked to Ray about it. And he's like, why not? You know, nothing really happening right now. So I bought half the studio. <laughs> Never in a million years did I ever think I was going to be a, a, a yoga studio owner or a business owner. So that was all new. That was a big learning curve. Uh, ended up buying the whole thing out a couple of years later. And also at the same time started a nonprofit for combat veterans, um, utilizing these tools with yoga, uh, yoga nidra. It's a yogic sleep. Uh, I rest is integrative restoration is the... Um, the version that I teach. 
Um, and we taught uh, what about 500 yeah, veterans what, at the time that we were there. Ray taught Cali, the Filipino martial arts. And uh, I taught yoga and I rest. And we also did uh, some other alternative therapies there. It was a good time for a couple of years. Yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat> now, how was it when you started training veterans with yoga? Because I imagine it's probably the same way when you say yoga to firefighters. The kind, of, kind of the same kind of attitude of like, Mm -hmm. serious like come on yeah yeah so it was it was easier for me I think than than most because I was prior military and I'm married to a first responder so I already know the eye roll before it even starts rolling (laughs) and uh so I I think I could unpack it to them because I had walked that I I realized what it had done for me and I had some of the same issues that they were having and uh, so I just basically rolled it out that way. I, I, I always say, I take all the dirty hippie out of my yoga. I don't talk about chakras and crystals and, you know, there's a place for all that stuff and people want to do a deep dive. Yeah. And it's very interesting, but that's not um, where you begin to present this kind of modality to that population because they'll just think you're nuts (laughs) so you just tell them this is what it's doing for your body and your mind and there's tons of research behind it so I just stick with the research this is you know what it shows this is what it does this is how maybe it'll feel and what it can do for you and um, I went through a warriors at ease training which is I would recommend that to anybody who's interested in teaching yoga to this population they teach you how to be a teacher to first responders and veterans and people with sexual trauma, all the, any kind of trauma, the body doesn't differentiate, right? It's trauma no matter what. Um, so that was a really solid training. Um, even though I had the background, it really helped me unpack it even better going through that. Nice. Now, right, you do the yoga stuff as well. You're a yoga instructor. You're also a martial arts instructor. When did you first try yoga and what was and what it was a kind of like you know what Janelle's saying like man this there's something here like this is more than just a workout it's it's kind of a mental thing as well sort of well I I was obviously married to Janelle so I got drugged to yoga. <laughs> okay uh, and actually the well my first experience with yoga was we did p90x back in the day you know the fitness thing and sure. and uh you know, it was rough. And then we got to yoga and I was like, oh, good. We get to stretch and relax. And that turned out to be one of the worst ones, you know? And then uh, she took me to this yoga studio and the first class she took me to was a hot power yoga class and uh, was doing it. And I got about halfway through and and I had to lay down. I was laying in a puddle of my own sweat. And then I, I kind of, I looked off to my side and here's a like 70 something year old lady in down dog, just looking over at me, you know? And I was just, you know, looked up, she completed the class. I pretty much laid there for like the last 15 minutes of class. And uh, it was kind of humiliating, you know? And, uh, but I, I did feel good. Uh, once I cooled down and 
to make it a little more humiliating, she, uh, when class was over, I watched her leave, get in her car in a handicap park, uh, excuse me, in the handicap spot and put her oxygen cannula on and drive off. And I was like, wow. And, and you know, this turned out this lady had emphysema and, you know, she'd been practicing for a while and really was able to push the boundaries of her health for a long time. And, and to me, I started, you know, it was a challenge again. So I started going back to yoga and it to me in the beginning, it was like, a, it was more the workout portion of it for me. Um, at that point, I didn't realize I had any PTS issues going on. You know, um, we always have that conversation that I used to think something was wrong with me from all the things that I had seen and run on and really nothing seemed to bother me. And I thought there was something odd about that. And he used to make that comment to her, there's gotta be something wrong with me that none of that stuff bothers me, you know, and which turned out wasn't true. <laughs> but um, it, it was, I think through the yoga, you know, I got interested in the yoga and I wanted to learn more about yoga. So I went through to become a yoga instructor and uh, through working the nonprofit with my wife, I was there pretty much every day. I wasn't at the fire department and uh, being around pretty much at that time, most of the people that were coming through were from the special operations community and had either tried to commit suicide, had a plan to commit suicide or somewhere it, it, it really in a crisis. Um, and then I was working with them every day. They would be there for five days. You know, the, the retreat program was five days and I would work, develop bonds with them. And, you know, they started sharing a lot of their stories, you know, once you, you built some trust and, you know, I kept hearing the same stories and the same things going on. And the more I heard their stories, the more I heard some of the things they were going through, the more I, I saw those things in myself. And I was like, oh my God, that's me, that's me. You know, I'm not losing my mind, you know? And then that, that was kind of the first clue that, you know, maybe I wasn't uh, dealing with that stuff so well. Nice, so did, did doing the yoga, was that kind of your therapy or did you actually go and, and get therapy? I mean, once you realize that there's a problem there, you know, th that this, this stuff is going on. I'm not invincible. I've, I've kind of played it off to where I'm invincible and nobody could tell that there's stuff going on, but there really is. I mean, kind of what was your, your next step to once you realized stuff was going on to, to get, you know, to the next point? Well, I think it was all kind of, I would say accidental because I was becoming aware of this during a time that I was heavily active, active in physical fitness, um, in martial arts, and now in this yoga practice in a basically a center for basically healing for post-traumatic stress. So just being there and going through those modalities and teaching those modalities was big. Um, going back a little bit, um, I pretty much done martial arts most of my life, but during the time when we were married and had a little kid obviously that had to take a back seat with you know working 100 something hours you can only fit so much in in a day and uh one day i had an incident with my chief and you know we, i think we almost got into a 
physical altercation. You know, we were both amped up and then uh, it was that, that um, day that I told my wife, I, I got to go back to martial arts. I need an outlet. You know, I knew, I didn't know there was a PTS thing, but I knew like the stress needed to be offloaded and fitness and stuff always was good to me. And went back and that's kind of where I found the Filipino martial arts, which I kind of felt very healing, you know? So all of those things together, as I was finding out that I had some issues, you know, that's when we start to take a backward look at what was going on. And, and if you go back a few years before that, um, one of my best friends who was a first responder, um, he wound up, taking his own life and I was the one that found him and uh, you know thinking back now I remember like a year after that it happened you know my wife going I don't think you're dealing with that too well you know you should probably get some help and of course I never did and just kind of stuffed it away like I stuffed everything else away and uh, you know I realized at the time working with all these veterans and telling them how great yoga is and telling them how great, you know, the martial arts are and this, this guided meditation and all these things that I was doing. Well, one of the other things I was telling them about is accelerated resolution therapy, which is one of the modalities that was used there. And uh, realized I hadn't done that myself and that, you know, I should probably go through and experience it for myself, especially with the, the suicide of my friend. And, and I actually went, through a session with that and man, it, you know, it, it kind of put that to bed for me, which kind of really began my path to, to getting my shit together. <laughs> uh, I was never like suicidal, never really depressed, but I was profoundly hypervigilant. Um, uh, I wasn't violent, but I had like very bad anger issues and quick to, you know, short fuse kind of stuff like that. Never with my wife or anything like that, but just having a daughter, <laughs> having a daughter is definitely a, a stress, you know? So it was like, there was not much uh, capacity in my reserves at that point. So um, all of those things together, you know, uh, and then the, the yoga instructor thing came around and that was like, that was a way for me to, okay, if I'm going to be in a yoga teacher program, that's going to hold me accountable to doing yoga every day. So, so all those things, it was kind of one of those things that when I talked to other first responders, which is kind of an, another thing, right? Everybody knew that I was doing this work with veterans with my wife. So I had all these first responders reaching out to me that were having crises that we were kind of getting in. And this is before I, I had kind of figured it out for my myself, you know, and it, it kind of lost my track where I was going with that, but. That'd be good. I think when um, he had two shoulder surgeries and like he worked, like he said, I, I always say, yeah, we've been married 20 years, but really I think we've probably been together seven. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps us young, right? Um, so um, when he had his first shoulder surgery, uh, he had complications with it. And how long were you out with that one? Seven months. It was, yeah, like really stuck in the house, like rehabbing. He had to go back in and it was infected. It was all, so he never sat that long with himself, I don't think. And that really started to bring some things up for you. Yeah, because I get, you know, I always tell everybody the biggest coping mechanism that first responders use 
is workaholics. Like how many firemen do you know that come to the fire station and then on their days off, just live their life? There's occasionally one or two smart guys. But the, the, guy, the guys that clock in and, and then clock out and they're done and their time off is whatever. Very that's that's atypical. Yeah, no, it's usually a, hey, I'm a, I'm, you know, I do concrete. I'm an electrician. I'm going to run private ambulances. I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be part of the union. I mean, it's right. not very many people that are just, you know, yeah. lay, lay back when they're off. Yeah. And if you fill up every hour of your day, you really don't have to worry about that. It's a, it's a, you know, I think it's one of the biggest coping mechanisms that the first responder community and the veteran community use. And, and for me, that was the first time, like, it was the first time that I realized being home that long, uh, that my work schedule was not normal. Because to me, working 120 hours that week and somebody going, hey, there's an overtime shift, taking that other 24 hours was, seemed normal. You know, and that was the first time I realized that was not normal. And uh, and then after seven months and three surgeries on that shoulder, I went back to work. Um, I was at work three months. I was teaching a live fire. And in between, we had a concrete backer board fall from the ceiling and I shoved it off and I tore my other shoulder and I went back under the knife for three more months. And, you know, it after that, you know, you would think I learned my lesson um, with the workaholic thing. I hadn't kind of sorted all that out yet. Uh, when I got back to work, that's when I kind of, uh, I think I think that was the time when my, my, my chronology gets all screwed up too. But like uh, at one point I was the, I was teaching at the fire academy, live fire mostly. I was the district chief. I was also doing, because we had some downsizing, I was the, also the training chief and the EMS chief. And then I was assisting with the ops. So, um, you know, I, I think I effectively filled up every hour of the day. You know? And you were doing like seven martial arts or something. Well, <laughs> once I started transitioning and, and giving off all those things and I got into martial arts again, all right, let's talk about that time management thing, right? So one martial art is good, seven have to be better, right? So I was doing, at, at that point, I was doing seven at the time. And and I had kind of worked it out that I would, I would pick up these training chief responsibilities in exchange for uh, comp time. So, and they would let me leave a couple hours here and there to go do my martial arts classes. So I was able to actually squeeze all that stuff into my schedule. All right. Let me bring in our next guest, a work-life balance person. <laughs> so you're not, but you're not running this speed like this anymore, right? You've, you've settled down at um, least a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we always find things to keep busy. Like I, I really dealt with a lot of that and then working with people with PTS is kind of my passion. But now, um, especially COVID, right? COVID was the big. Well, that was, that was gonna be my next question is how, because I imagine this is kind of like when you had your shoulder surgeries, why like everything in a way kind of stopped, or at least yeah. slowed down. 
I think I was prepared for it now because I kind of processed a lot. I learned a lot. And, and I, I think here's one of the things that for, that's been a big problem for first responders. And, and, and I'm just using my experience, but looking at others also is, um, I did all that stuff all those years, never realized that stuff was affecting me physically, mentally. Um, it takes a major toll on our health, but I, I think it's one of those things. It's like, you don't know till you know, you know? So a, a lot of people I think go through, have these struggles, you know, just write it up to stress in their life and things. And they're so busy, they don't think about it, but it's usually when an injury occurs or a retirement occurs. Like how many guys after they retire, right? Take their own lives. They get pulled out of that circle. They don't have all these things to fill up their time. And, and, and kind of the same thing with veterans. You know, they get out on an injury and now they, they're stuck with, with themselves. And uh, I'm busy, I, I teach martial arts every day. You know, I'm, I'm in the last seven months of my fire service career when I'm gonna retire. So I have a lot of vacation time and stuff. So I, I'm not working as much these days. Um, I do do stuff with O2X Human Performance. I'm starting to do some, some traveling with them. Um, but our days, we sleep in now. And one of the biggest things I think that goes with PTS is lack of sleep. Shift work, lack, lack of sleep. You know, you don't sleep at the station, you go to your next job. You don't sleep or, you know, people go out partying. And the more you read in the science of sleep, the more it's tied to heart attacks, strokes, cancers. I think it's a predominant factor in PTS. And now that when I'm home, I mean, we get up at nine or 10 o'clock. I mean, we, we skirted into this, this podcast, <laughs> like literally sat down two minutes before it started. Cause we do. This, this was a 10 o'clock start time too. So he's yeah. not the oh, essence. Yeah. So it, really I have noticed with sleeping properly now, it, it is an amazing difference in my body and in my mind. And when I work some back-to-back -back shifts and I don't get sleep now, I can feel the effects of it. But when you're when you're bathed in it every day, I don't think you realize it, you know. And and it it's one of those things. I think there's so many guys out there struggling that don't even realize they're struggling. And I know that really sounds weird unless you've experienced that. Um, it's, I always use the analogy like um, I'll, I'll be in a room and I'll notice some mark or something on a wall and I'll point that out. Do you ever see that before? And they're like, no, I, I bet you could never walk in this room now and not see that. It's one of those things when it's pointed out to you and you're aware of it, it's kind of hard not to see it. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Well, you kind of mentioned it, you, you mentioned them. How did you guys get involved with O2X? Um, well, the, Annie Ockerlin, um, she's an IRES instructor that I learned under. She was one of the first IRES teachers. And uh, she started with them right off the bat. Uh, I think they started in 2014, 15, something like that. But then once they started expanding, they needed more IRES teachers. And she's the one that pulled me in because she knew that we were doing work with veterans and that raise a first responder. And uh, that's how I got introduced to them. And it, it's, a, it's just an absolute 
amazing organization started by a few Navy SEALs um, that have access to all the top tier folks at the Pentagon, sleep experts, nutrition experts, um, physical fitness experts. They think super out of the box on training. Um, they, they, the first one I went to, I'm like, they brought in a parkour expert. I'm like, what, what are they doing with parkour? These guys ain't going to be flipping around and stuff. And they're like, no, no, it's to teach you how to land properly, um, with all the gear on when you're climbing in and out of trucks and through windows and doors with, you know, people are getting injured because their stabilizing muscles aren't loaded correctly. And he teaches you that kind of stuff. Movement, yeah, tech, tactical movements. It, it's just an, an amazing program. Yeah, and then um, the first O2X gig that she did was down in Broward. Mm -hmm. And uh, I accompanied her and uh, met Adam and we were talking about it. He's explaining the program. And, and immediately when he started describing what they were doing and then watching the program and you know watching Janelle's segment, um, I was blown away and I was like, man, where has this been my entire fire service career? Um, it's like, uh, it, you know, I guess it came around like they, you know, had guys working out in the, in the teams and all that and guys were getting injured and, you know, working out on their own and, you know, doing CrossFit and all this kind of stuff. And then they realized like, they just need to bring experts in to teach them how to be physically and mentally capable to continue being operational in the job. And then they've kind of taken that model, what they were doing and, and, and brought it to the first responder community because, you know, let's face it, as a first responder community as a whole, um, we're horrible about maintaining fitness and we're definitely not doing a good job with, with the mental prep for the job and sleep and all of that. And, uh, I was blown away with their program. And then it was a few months back that um, they asked me if, because I would go along to any O2X that she was going to that was in the area, or sometimes we'd make a trip out of it. And uh, they asked me if I would be interested in going up to Grand Rapids and teaching a section on the resilience. So I was like, sure, I'll try that. You know, I mean, the, the caliber of people they have teaching are, unbelievable and uh so i went up and I, I taught one for grand rapids and uh you know it was an interesting experience and uh really like being a part of it um and uh so yeah I, i've gotten involved just a few months ago with actually working with them and i've got another one coming up in december and then yeah i think that's kind of something I, I when we're talking about these subjects one of the things that i talked about working with first responders and veterans in this whole PTS realm. And it's a pretty, um, it's a thing we're not really doing a good job in the first responder community. I, and I, I kind of feel like of all those years working in the fire service, you know, save people and rescue people. I kind of feel like in the last five years working in this other realm that, um, kind of feel like I truly have been a part of saving more people on this end, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you this, though, regarding, again, the, and I, I kind of mentioned it beforehand, um, a lot of stuff 
that you're doing, you're having these veterans come in or you're having these first responders come in that are, that are having PTS issues. And they, they know that this is an outlet to where they can get help and kind of, you know, like you said, uh, was it a, a workup from the head up? That something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you get these first responders that are early on in their career or, you know, just, just starting or midway through the career, whatever it may be, but haven't got to the point where they've got that big stack of calls that kind of screw with them. How can you go about getting them into this early on and, and use it more as a preventative tool? Well, it's an awareness thing. And obviously with the, the profound amount of suicides in the first responder community, I think organizations are really beginning to look at that and, you know, nobody truly knows what the answer is, but it really needs to be that whole holistic approach. And, and it really needs to be a culture change. First being that um, it's okay for us not to be okay because, you know, what we keep looking at is PTS is we look at the guy who's spun out of control, who's ruined his life with drugs or alcohol, who is suicidal, who is screwing up on the job. But what we fail to realize is that guy has been struggling for years, you know, um, undealt with, right? And, and we're always trying to apply an answer at the end. And, and, and in my view, this needs to be part of the education piece coming in and they're starting you're starting to see that in academies and classes they're starting to talk about that and it needs to be throughout one's career right that there's continuing education there's programs to deal with that and then it needs to be a culture shift which is on the administratives it's on the union it's on the personnel that you know at the kitchen table i always talk about this one like, all right, at the kitchen table, what happens there besides us eating a large amount of food, right, is we talk about calls, right, the old war stories, you know, I remember back in the day that the senior guys talking about these big fires they went to and these good calls, I mean, they're, they're always good, they're always good stories because you know, mostly people aren't talking about picking grandma up off the floor, they're talking about some of the more exciting calls in your career. Uh, how long have you been doing the fire service now? Next month will be 20 years. Okay. In that 20 years, how many times in that kitchen table do you hear about what a rough time the person had with that call and dealing with the aftermath of that call? Rarely. And it's only been as of recent, if you do hear anything. Right. And, and it, was, it was absolutely taboo, uh, you know, unspoken words. Like you can't even bring that to the table until recent. And it was after having some, you know, multiple suicides within the department and, and other screwed up things. And I think that that's kind of part of it. We're, that's where we solve the world's problems is at that table. And I think it needs to be like, when we're talking about that, you know, you can talk about it, you know, I think that's part of like in these debriefings and stuff like that, but more importantly at the station that it's okay not to, to be bothered by that it's, it's actually really you figure out what we see it's really the opposite right if those things aren't affecting us there's there's probably something wrong with us and it, and it is we just i think we cover it up without knowing because 
that's the norm. I, 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 I tell this story too. Early on in my career in the late 80s, I believe it was, we had a really bad pediatric call, run over, head, still alive when we got there. And, um, you know, pretty traumatic call, family there, a lot of bystanders. Kid didn't make it, you know, we worked a kid. Um, and then afterwards, my partner says, hey, man, uh, I'm not doing well with that at all. Like, I'm, I'm really struggling. This was like right after the call. This is like during the time when uh, the CISD or whatever the acronym was at that time had started. And uh, I went over to our administrative office with our lieutenant and said, hey, man, a guy is struggling and he needs some help. And the answer I got was, um, if something like that bothers him, he's too much of a pussy to work in the fire service, right? And, and then uh, he wound up, you know, the, the team, we pressed it anyway, the team came, but the team came like seven days later. And then he said, uh, thanks for coming to see me like three days after I was found doing quarter turns for my ceiling, you know? And he told him to fuck off and get out of there. He wound up out of the fire service, you know, he, he's back in, in, in it now. And he, he found his, his path back through religion and stuff like that. But I've seen that kind of stuff play out over and over. And you would hope that that same scenario, if it happened today, that they would get a much, much different answer than, than that. Yeah. But I think it's also the whole, like over the years, you know, I think sometimes that was seen as weakness just because that wasn't the normal conversation at the firehouse. So I think it makes people hesitant to talk about it. And, you know, I think the, the perception is if you say that things like that are bothering you, that you might wind up losing your career. And that's probably not the reality, but it's the perception. And if that's the perception, it becomes your reality. And I, I'll tell you, like, everything I've been through in my career and when I was starting to have those struggles and starting to realize it, I didn't feel comfortable uh, coming forward with that. I mean, everybody knew that I was working in that realm. I had a chief that I actually trusted and, and, you know, I did let him know and it was fine. You know, um, for the most part, when people reach out, um, you know, I, I, I share my story with them. And a lot of times, you know, people that have known me for years, like I had no idea, you know, cause I was always the calm, calming factor on the calls everybody's seen me on some pretty intense stuff and nothing ever rattled me and I think like sometimes from senior people or people that have done a lot for them to share that they've had some struggles too makes it kind of okay for other people because they were like a, a lot of my friends that when I shared that with them were just like you I, I can't believe that any ever called because you, just like myself and many others that are firefighters or first responders, are or should be Academy Award winning actors and actresses. Yeah. Like we put on a show, we put on a show or on the scene, and we can do it elsewhere too. I mean, well, I, I, uh, I, I fooled myself. I mean, I, I didn't realize any of those things. But I, I, and honestly, I, I really don't think at the time they, they were. You know, because uh, 
it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, for me, it was like, it was after my friend's suicide that um, I think that kind of peeled the scab away a little bit. And that's when things started bleeding out. And, you know, we talk about it, like, sadly, me and my best friend started in this career together. And uh, of the group of us that hang out together, I, I tell this story often when I'm talking to people, really, we're the only ones left. We've had several of that group commit suicide. And of the others, they've either ruined their careers due to drugs and alcohol, you know, from the stresses of their job. And, uh, it, and I've seen that repeated itself over and over through my career, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think you're the only one, Ray. That's the, that's the horrible thing. Yeah. I'm I, mean, I, look, at, I look at my crew and I, it's, yeah, I'm not anywhere near as tenured as you, but I can, I feel the same way about my class and what's remaining and, and where the others have gone that aren't there anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky I've got a really good support system at home. You know, my wife is awesome. She's also got a similar kind of background. So, but if you know, in the fire service, like this job is not really good for relationships, right? Like how, how many, you can, you can take a survey at the station. How many people have been divorced? How many people have been divorced twice? How many people, you know, and it's the same guy that'll never get married again, but he keeps getting married again. Right. And obviously there's something going on there, Sure. you know, but one, the schedule is hard on, on lives and, you know, and then take the stress if there's a job and then take financial stressors and then divorce and, you know, alcoholism and drugs and, and all of those factors and you just keep piling all these things on you know it, the, the, it's a you know turning that ship is hard it, it, it's 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 a culture change and you know and unfortunately i think we've probably got to go through a lot more suicides to wake up a lot more people you know but that you know it, dollars and cents seem to be what what make it and you know, and I think the special operations community has realized investing in their operators that they've spent millions of dollars in to keep them bringing in programs to keep them mentally fit, physically fit, rehabbed, injury prevention, that whole package keeps them, you know, mentally healthy, even post job, but investing in your guys in the beginning you know if you're expecting especially the way pensions are going you're expecting guys now to do this job for 25 30 plus years and to be operational at basically you know at a fire we're expected to perform at the level of a professional athlete in an average guy's body and yeah and oftentimes we're doing this with less manpower than yeah what you started with or what I started with for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So do more of less and do it for longer. Good yeah. luck. <laughs> my one pet peeve, which I brought up over and over again is like my whole career, you know, most of the training and education was geared, geared toward rightfully so not killing firemen and firefighters in, in a fire, right? How do we prevent that? How do we bring that number down? And we have over the years brought that number down. But when you look at that number, you know, some bad years, 120, 130, 
one is too many. But when you look at the number we haven't fixed is more than 50% of them dying from health related things, accidents and stuff like that. The biggest blinking light is the health and the mental health. And that's where the least resources go to. And that's where we can make the, the biggest impact. And that really, really hasn't changed much. You know, We're spending all of these resources not killing somebody in a fire, right? Meanwhile, we were giving guys cancer right we're 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 taking guys that are having um stents put in in their 40s and 50s and having heart attacks and you know look at the line of duty deaths you're seeing guys in 30s 40s and 50s dying of heart attacks on the job i mean it's just it that's that's holistically the the whole health of the firefighter and investing in the beginning and throughout the career one, it makes from a dollar and cents point of view, it makes more sense for them. They're going to have a more productive, happy workforce and, uh, and you're going to get some long longevity. And then obviously on the other side, you're going to, you're going to have some people that are mentally prepared to be retired and, and, and continue living their lives after serving the community. Let me touch on that. That was a great segue there. You got your short time. You got seven months left. Yes. I know you're not going to just hang out and relax. I mean, you're going to be doing something. What's, what's going to be kind of your purpose coming out of this, this job? Um, for me, like martial arts has been a passion of mine. Uh, I teach every day. Um, well, like three to five days a week I teach. Um, and I, I travel for seminars and teach some seminars. Um, I have a martial arts school. We have the yoga studio. So those are two things that I will continue doing. Um, O2X, I really like what they're doing for the fire service. Um, I, I like helping out people with issues with PTS and, and I don't know, being an advocate for that and, and being a resource for that. So I can see continuing all of those things moving forward. And then we're also, um, just got some property in the mountains and mm -hmm. we're looking at building a home up there, but really it'll be an active retirement between physical fitness, our martial arts, our yoga. Uh, and then we'd like to continue doing the work with, with PTS. So that, that brings me a lot of satisfaction knowing that I can help other brother and sister firefighters and first responders and, and, you know, poor guys in law enforcement, you know, what, what's going to be the fallout for them for what's happening? And then uh, healthcare workers, you know, with all this COVID stuff, that the extra burdens for guys and girls in the emergency room, what's going to be the fallout for that coming forward? You know, there's, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done there. And I, I know that that's, that's kind of where my efforts are going to be. I'm not a guy that'll ever just sit around but I'm actually enjoying some sitting up. Nice. Good deal. So let me start getting you out of here. Let's do, uh, I've got the 25 questions here, the list here. Let's have a little bit of fun and uh, then we'll get you out of here and you can, hell, you guys can go back to bed if you want. <laughs> All right, Janelle, I want to start with you. How about you pick a number one through 25? Three. First concert. 
My first concert was Scorpions. It was in the 80s. Ingbe Melmstein backed them up, and it was at Alpine Valley, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Ray, what about you? What was your first concert? My first concert was in 1978 in Madison Square Garden. It was to see Kiss. That was a definite introduction to, <laughs> to the... Uh, if you're going to ever go to a concert and be a first one, Kiss would be it. It was their, I think it was their dynasty tour. They were still in makeup. You know, it was amazing. Going to the, wow, okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Not that the Scorpions were bad, Janelle, but going to the garden, the yeah. Mecca, yeah. to see Kiss in 78. Was that's, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, like you, you maxed that. Your first concert was like, all right, I'm done. Like anything yeah. that came after that. Yeah, it was kind of hard to match that afterwards. That's pretty cool. <laughs> all right, Ray, how about you pick a number? Eleven. Who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Oh shit, Sam Elliott. <laughs> well, I always get that one, but I don't think I'm that rugged. Um, you're pretty rugged. I don't know. That, I don't know. I'm weird looking at myself like that. I, I'd have to defer to John. I'm pretty thinking Sam Elliott. I don't know. He just has that okay. demeanor. Well, who would play Janelle? This better be good. I don't know. It better be good. Yeah. <laughs> I am horrible at these Somebody <laughs> really cool and pretty and. I don't even know. Nothing. Okay. All right. We'll move on. Can I, can I re-pick a number? <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's fair. Go ahead. Eight. You have a favorite book? The Body Keeps the Score. Have you read that one? What if I told you that I would say, no, I have not read it, but I actually just got it this week. Uh, I just ordered it. It just arrived. I haven't got to it yet, though. It's it's a really interesting look at trauma and your body and the way we process trauma and some of the research in there. It, it, it's a pretty amazing book. If if this kind of stuff interests you, it's it's definitely a must read. Awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna get to it here soon. Janelle, do you have one? Yeah, I just um, said this one on behind the shield. I, I read James Hatch's um, book. Uh, touching the dragon and uh, it was just one of those books where I couldn't stop listening I, I do audiobooks and I listen to them when I ride my bike and I had to keep getting on my bike to finish it because I it was so good it was that good yeah it, it's um he, he was a navy seal I know every navy seal writes a book but they're not all created equal <laughs> this one was really a, a nice journey on and it, it's very applicable to the first responder job because it's about more of you know yeah the operations part uh, but more about what happens after you leave uh, he got injured and then that whole journey of you know trying to write yourself after living that crazy life and and the fallout from that and uh it's it's a great read awesome no it sounds good all right well let's get you guys out of here on one more one more uh what number do you guys want seven 
All right. What is something popular now, but everyone will look back at five years from now and think it's stupid or embarrassing? What's kind of trending now that's dumb? Don't believe selfies. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking rap music, maybe. <laughs> I just can't stand that stuff. I know I'm, I'm old. Okay. All right. All right. Let's. Uh, how about this? How about you guys tell me? Tell not me, but my listeners. Where can they track you down? Where can they find you? Not in a stalking way or anything weird, but just if they wanted more information. We're both pretty open. We're all over social media, Facebook, uh, under both of our names. And Ray's school is Gulf Coast Cali. Gulf Coast FCS Cali. FCS Cali and um, the yoga studios Trinity-Yoga.com. And any first responders or veterans and their significant others, uh, just want to put it out there that we give them a free five class card at my studio if you're in the area. And um, we do free classes every Thursday with a gentle yoga and an eye rest. It's like a big power nap. Um, it's a guided meditation. And that's just for veterans and first responders, that class. Mm -hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for everything you're doing down there, but just also traveling for two X and just, just keep it up. Don't stop, Ray. I know you're not going to stop, but don't stop. <laughs> Thank you for what you're doing and bringing Thank all you. this stuff to light too, Jim. Of course. Of course. Well, that's Janelle, that's Ray and I'm Jim and we're out of time. So I'll talk to you listeners next week. All right, let's do it. Bye. Thank you guys.